There are a number of different ways to end a story. For example, one of the most common ways is the expected ending. I don't have to explain that to y'all, right? If you're, uh, if any of y'all watch Hallmark Christmas movies uh, in November and December, you know what an expected ending is, right? I can normally watch one of those for a few minutes and know who all the main characters are and how the story's going to play out and what the ending's gonna be. That's the expected ending. There's also the cliffhanger. This is when the story is left unresolved, and uh, these are usually followed up with the sequel, right? Then there is the confused ending. You ever watched a movie with a confused ending, and you're left wondering, did I like that or not? You don't really know, right? And uh, then there is the twist. This is when one thinks a story is heading in a certain direction, and then a twist occurs, and it heads in a completely different direction. And there was a type of twist ending that I came across when I was researching this a little bit called a eucatastrophe. You ever heard of that term? Eucatastrophe. It's, it's a type of plot twist where terribly bad circumstances turn unexpectedly good. This is a story that, that flips quickly from impending doom to unexpected joy, from death and destruction to life and salvation. How many of you know stories like that? Believers, you should know a story like that, right? If you know your Bibles, we, we see the Bible reads in this way, right? God's gospel is told in this way. The book of Zephaniah reads in this way as well. If you have your Bibles, Turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We are finishing this book, Lord willing, today, okay, through Zephaniah. And for those of you all who have been with us throughout this study, you know that up to this point, Zephaniah's message has been pretty much headed in one direction, and that is downward. In, in all of chapter 1, most of chapter 2, God has been addressing the sin of his people and the sins of the surrounding nations. And he has told them all that he is bringing judgment. So the, the trajectory of this book to this point has been headed in this downward direction. God's people are wicked. They're not trusting in the Lord. They're not following him. They've turned away from him to other idols. They're guilty of idolatry and duplicity and apathy. But they, they do not believe that they have, have drifted from God because they're still worshiping him while worshiping falsely as well, and they're, they're apathetic in their attitude toward God. They're saying God's not going to do anything to us, neither good nor, nor bad. Well, God tells them that he is bringing judgment down upon his own people. In chapter 2, God shifts his focus to the wicked nations surrounding his people, but his message remains the same. We learn in chapter 2 that the wicked nations were set against God's people and they were prideful about it, believing they had achieved what they had achieved by their own strength, believing no one was beside them and no one could touch them. And God tells them, 
through his prophet Zephaniah, he is not beside them, he is over them. And he will certainly touch them. He will bring down his hand of judgment upon them as well. He tells them that he will wipe them out completely and bring their great and prosperous nation and lands to ruin. That is where Zephaniah's message has been headed to this point. Toward this great and terrible day of judgment. And we will continue to see this message in the first half of Zephaniah 3. The prophet continues down this road with this message as his focus shifts back to his people once again. But midway through chapter 3, there comes a twist. The prophet's message moves from doom and gloom, darkness and despair, to hope and joy, light and life. Zephaniah's message shifts from judgment to salvation, from condemnation to the hope of redemption. Because, watch this, his focus shifts from condemned sinners to a wonderful Savior. We'll get to the twist in a moment. First notice, Zephaniah is not finished with his message of judgment. In verses 1 through 8, of Zephaniah 3, Zephaniah restates an important truth that he has repeated throughout this book, and that is, point number one, God will punish the unrepentant because of their sin. Look at verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. At the beginning of this study, we said Zephaniah's main audience was the Jewish people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And because that's the case, it makes sense here that Zephaniah has come full circle, right? To focus back in on his people and their sin. He started with them and he will end with them. Notice how he describes this city in verse 1. He says, the oppressing city. Now, oftentimes, God's people are described in a positive light, right? We have them described as a holy nation, a, a people holy to the Lord, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a city on the hill, the bride, God's temple. Here, notice, God refers to his people as rebellious, and defiled, the oppressing city. They were not holy. They were not set apart from the surrounding nations. They were just like them, and they were set against God. They had rebelled against God, were set against Him in sin, were idolatrous and duplicitous in their, their worship of God, and as a result, they had become defiled spiritually, and they were apathetic in their attitude toward God. They just didn't care. They didn't care. And they were separated from him relationally. And as a result, because of that, they were awful to one another. 
And those two often go hand in hand. You can really tell the spiritual state of a believer by how he treats other believers or she treats other believers. The two go hand in hand. When our relationship with God suffers vertically, our relationship with one another suffers horizontally. That's the way it works. Look at verse 2. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. How many of you know someone like this? How many of you are like this? The inhabitants of Israel listened to no one, accepted no correction, did not trust in the Lord, did not draw near to God. While, while God sent them prophets to rebuke them and call for them to forsake their sin and turn back to him, while he disciplined them, they did not respond favorably. They did not look to the Lord and, and trust in him. Instead, they, they drifted further from him. Unfortunately, that is the response of many. I pray that not be your response this morning. If up to this point in your life, you've gone at life on your own, apart from and opposed to God, I pray you would hear this message of God's coming judgment and the hope of salvation that he has provided through his son Jesus, and you would forsake your sin and turn to the Lord. Pray you wouldn't continue down that path. Learn the lesson from those in Zephaniah's day. Zephaniah's people did not turn. They did not draw near. They did not forsake their ways. They did not believe on the Lord. They did not trust in Him. They did not draw near to Him. They disobeyed from the top down. Look at verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. That leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. You ever heard it said before? I, I know I've said it in here before that our churches will only be as strong as the leaders are spiritually healthy and strong. Have you heard that said before? It's true of a nation as well. Nation will only be as strong as its Leaders, And we see that again and again in God's word. And that was true of the inhabitants in Jerusalem. Their, their leaders were roaring lions. Their, their judges were evening wolves. They were ferocious tyrants. They were oppressive and tyrannical and corrupt. The image of evening wolves makes it seem as if they were really quiet and reserved during the day. But they were up to no good in the evening hours. They were in it for themselves, and they led their people down the same path, which is why Zephaniah refers to the city as a whole as the oppressing city. Notice the contrast between this wicked people and the Lord. Look at verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. We're reminded here, no matter what those who claim to be the people of God do in the name of God, that does not change who God is, and that does not change his attributes one bit. That does not change him. He is always at work. He is just and good. He is faithful no matter what, even when no one else is. 
Many have blamed God for the actions of, of those who have done horrible things in the name of God. And I would say those are imposters, those who claim to be people of God and, and do horrible things in his name. But that does not change. Zephaniah reminds us here, that does not change who God is. Even in the midst of godlessness, God should be looked to and followed and trusted in. He does not change. He is holy, righteous, worthy of all of our devotion, all of our worship, all of our focus. Zephaniah followed his own counsel. In the midst of a wicked people, he was faithful. And Josiah, the king at the time, would follow in his footsteps. And be faithful as well. But many did not. Zephaniah says the, the unjust, that is the wicked inhabitants of Jerusalem knows no shame. They should have been, they should have experienced great shame for their sin. They should have been broken over their sin, but they were not. Look at verses 6 and 7. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. God is basically saying through his prophet here, Do you not know that I have wiped places off the map who are guilty of what you're guilty of? Do you know that I have brought nations that share your wickedness, I brought them to complete destruction, to utter ruin. Verse 7, I said, surely you'll fear me. You'll see these acts that I've done and you'll fear me. You'll accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. He says, instead of responding to the promise of my wrath in fear and repentance, you have even become more corrupt. This is one depraved people, isn't it? Notice we, we're reminded of something here that we've looked at before that's very, very important that we see throughout the minor prophets. The past judgments of God are his mercy. They are. The past judgments of God are his mercy. While we have said that God's judgment is retributed, that's one of your questions, mark that down. We'll take a quiz next week. I'm giving you a little review here. It's true, it is. It's retaliatory. He does punish the wicked for the wrong that they've done. Another reason God responds to wickedness with wrath is because he is a loving and gracious and merciful God. When I was little and I was acting up in public, my mom would give me that look. You know that look? Sometimes she might squeeze my hand. My dad might swap me on the backside a little bit. That was acts of grace. That was acts of mercy. Reminding me, if you don't straighten up, there's going to be a worse punishment to come when you get home. They were meant to cause me to get back in line 
quickly. We, we learn here from Zephaniah that, that God's past works of, of judgment are meant to produce this in his people. It was meant to correct them, to straighten them out, to cause them to fall back in line so that they would not suffer a similar fate. That is why, believers, we must not shy away from sharing of God's wrath and judgment with other people. I've, I've met people, and I know you have as well, who have told me they, they prefer pastors not preach too much on God's judgment, but rather just want pastors to speak on God's mercy and grace and love. Listen, folks, these stories of God's past acts of judgment are his mercy. The promise of his coming judgment is his mercy. And listen, you can't understand God's mercy if you don't understand what we've been saved from. We've been saved from his wrath, from his judgment. How can you truly understand what mercy is, what grace is, what love is, what salvation is if you don't know what you've been saved from? It's very, very important. They're meant to remind us that promise of future judgment. That a greater day of judgment is coming and they're meant to lead us to repentance. But we see here that the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they, they had become so wicked that God's past acts of judgment, it didn't lead them to repentance. Instead, they responded with an even greater eagerness to make all their deeds corrupt. So God responds, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Yikes. Notice here, because they did not respond to God's past acts of judgment in fear and repentance, God says through his prophet Zephaniah to the people of Israel, wait for me. Several sermons ago, I said that the promise of God coming soon, it, it's either met with invitation or with warning. It's something some will look forward to and long for and others dread. When God says here, wait for me, he doesn't mean it in a good way. He doesn't. Consider the context. They, they responded to God's past acts of judgment by committing even greater acts of corruption. They, they did not trust the Lord, but they drifted further from him. So God responds to them with this warning. He says, therefore, wait for me. He says, there is coming a day when you will be my prey. Yikes. Your leaders and the rest of the wicked among you shall be my prey. I'm going to gather you up with the other nations. I'm going to assemble kingdoms together and pour out my wrath upon you all. Now, I said a couple of sermons ago that whenever you're dealing with prophetic books, there is what is called immediate fulfillment, and then there is future fulfillment Okay, in these prophetic books. This verse here has both in mind, I believe. This day of judgment coming 
for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the inhabitants of the, uh, the, the nations surrounding them, the wicked nations. And there is also the great and final day, that future day of judgment in mind as well, coming for us all. This, this message God gives to them to wait for them, this promise of him coming soon, it was not good for these wicked, unrepentant people. What about for you? What will the day of the Lord mean for you? Will it be a day of weeping or will it be a day of rejoicing? Will it be a day of anticipation for God's salvation as he glorifies us, makes us like his son Jesus? Or will it be a terrible day of devastation and condemnation? It was said last week, how you respond to God today will determine how that day will go for you. I urge you today, if you hear God's word today, do not harden your hearts. Respond in repentance and faith. Make Christ Lord today. So we learn in verses 1 through 8, God will punish the unrepentant because of their sin. Here comes the twist. We learn in our final verses, verses 9 through 20, that God will also save the repentant from their sins. God will punish the unrepentant because of their sin. He will save the repentant from their sin. Look at verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Verse 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Wow. What a twist, right? You think Zephaniah is just going to continue down this path, this path downward on this negative tone, but suddenly and unexpectedly the tone changes from doom and gloom to hope and salvation. Look at verse 9 again. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. While this wicked people are headed down this downward trajectory. And while there seems to be no hope of change, God says through his prophet that he is going to intervene. And he is going to transform hardened hearts and bring wayward sinners to repentance and faith. Notice the phrase, I will, used multiple times here. Who is going to do this incredible work? 
God will, God will, God will, God will, God will. Very clear. Salvation is a work that God does, period. Is man responsible? Yes. Certainly for his or her wickedness, right? What do we contribute in salvation? Well, we sin, which makes us in need of saving. That's a work we do. And yes, repentance and belief is commanded by God and we are responsible for that response to Him. But we see clearly here that God is the one who changes hearts and lives. Notice these two phrases that are used again and again in this passage. I will and they shall. Do you see that? I will, they shall. The word order and the repetition of these words is significant here. The I wills come first. First God must do this work. Then come the they shalls. We see both. God's sovereignty and human responsibility here. God makes it clear in this passage that salvation is a work he does. He is the one who changes the speech of his people by changing their hearts. He is the one who makes defiled sinners clean. Wayward sinners right. We also see that while man is responsible for his sinfulness, which is what made him in need of salvation, he is responsible in his response to the work that God does in him. God says here, I will change the speech of the people from evil speech to pure speech. I will change their speech. And we're not just talking here about God cleaning up bad language. We're talking about God correcting idolatrous words of false worship. Their wicked words of pride. Their hateful and harmful words against their fellow man. He's going to clean it all up. Giving them words of repentance and faith and love. We, we learned several weeks ago in Luke 6. Out of the overflow of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks, right? So for the words of our mouths to change, what must change? Our hearts. God is saying here, I will change their speech. To pure speech by changing their hearts. And notice what they're going to do as a result. He says that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And serve him with one accord. We're also told here that he is going to save the, the wicked nation of Judah. By providentially removing the wicked from them. And raising up the humble and the lowly people in their place. Who will seek him. Skip down to verse 11. He says on that day. You shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. That's God's mercy, by the way. Do you see that? They rebelled. They deserve judgment. Instead, God says, you will not be put to shame for it. I'll remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth the deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Notice the, the phrase, you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Whose holy mountain is it? 
The Lord's, right? God's. While they were living in God's land, dependent upon him for everything, they lived as if they were dependent upon no one or nothing, as if they had achieved what they had achieved on their own. God tells them, I am taking out the proud and the haughty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave in your midst a people who are truly humble and lowly, who will seek refuge in me. They will no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. He says, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God promises here to provide protection and refuge and rest for his chosen people in the midst of a dangerous, chaotic, hostile, and restless world. How can God provide this for them? By removing the, the, the danger? By bringing calm to the, the, to the chaos? Not ultimately. He will one day, but not right away. But by assuring them, he is their protection and he is their refuge from harm. And by forgiving them of their sins and bringing rest to their restless souls and restoring them to a right relationship with himself. God says through Zephaniah, I'm going to bring about a transformation to this nation. I'm going to transform this nation from... And unjust to a just people from wicked to godly, from being slanderous and insulting to complimentary and encouraging, from a nation that is rebellious and defiled to one that is faithful and pure, from a people who did not trust in me and refused to draw near to me, to one who seeks me and trusts in me and loves me and relies upon me. God is going to do all this. Notice what else we see here in this passage. God gives a great word of comfort to his people who go into exile. They're going to go into exile. Babylonians are going to take them captive. He tells them he will gather them again after he scatters them for the purpose of restoring them. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Look at verse 18. Skip down to verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. So in addition to gathering these Jewish exiles back together, which God is going to do, God is also going to remove their sorrow from them by restoring their nation to them and all of its practices. While in exile, they'll be cut off from the places of worship. They'll be unable to take part in observing the feast and the festivals which they had up to that point neglected. And God is going to restore these things. He says, they shall bring offerings once again, verse 10. Their feast and festivals restored. Verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The wicked nations will get theirs, God says. And God will save his people who have been brought low, the lame and the outcast, he will save and gather to himself and change their shame into glory, their sorrow into praise as he restores them to himself. Verse 20. At that time I will bring you in 
at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God's exiled people will be restored by God himself. Notice the I wills again here. I will bring you in. I will gather you together. I will make you renowned. I will, I will make you praised among the peoples of the earth. Again, he will change their shame to glory. He is going to restore their fortunes. While they, they lose earthly possessions, they will be restored. But God, in, in, in God, they will gain much, much more than that. His chosen people will. They will gain heavenly riches. We learned that when we looked at Ezekiel 36, right? What a demonstration of God's amazing grace. They didn't deserve this, folks. They deserved death and destruction. They deserved judgment. For those who, who, who believe the God of the New Testament is all mercy, grace, and love, and the God of the Old Testament is, is just wrath and judgment, they haven't read all of Zephaniah. It begins with judgment, right? But it ends, here's another one of your questions for next week, with salvation. The book ends with salvation. God shows here that he is rich in mercy. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Now what are God's people to do in response to this future day of, of restoration? And salvation. Verses 14 through 15. They are called to worship. Here comes the call to worship. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice, Fellowship Bible Church. And exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Zephaniah ends this message of, of hope directed at God's people Israel by calling for them to worship him. While they deserve judgment, while they have, are, and will suffer at the hands of their enemies, he tells them that God will eventually wipe their enemies out and restore them them completely and he calls for them to worship him in response to this future work we, we learn here like we do all throughout scripture that the proper response to God's great work of salvation is worship that's why we gather here Sunday after Sunday that's why we're to be gathered is to worship Believers, when we think on God's great work in saving us, worship should be the response. Now, how is God able to do this great work of salvation? Scripture is clear that we, like the Israelites in Zephaniah's day, are set against God in our sin. We have rejected God's rule and reign. We have gone at life on our own. How is, is God then able to restore us? How is he able to restore them to a right relationship with him? We have our answer at the end of Zephaniah. Look at the end of verse 15. Zephaniah tells his people, the king of Israel, 
The Lord is in your midst. Get this. God is going to do it. How are we going to be saved? From God? By God. That's the gospel. Keep reading. Verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. That sometimes happens as a result of fear. You ever been so scared you lose use of your hands? It'll be a terrifying day for some. But God tells his people, while that day, while in that day many will have good reason to fear, God tells his people they will not. Why? Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Again, we see God's amazing grace on display. We're the inhabitants of Jerusalem deserving of salvation. Say no. Read Zephaniah 1. Read Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8. They rejected God. They went after other gods. They were apathetic in their attitude toward God. They did not trust God. They refused correction by God. And they drifted from God. They're about as undeserving a group as you'll get. Yet, the Lord drew near to them. He dwelt among them. Instead of bringing down his hand of judgment upon them all, he stretches out his mighty hand of mercy and grace to save a remnant. Instead of shouting out harsh words of judgment against them all, he rejoices over them with gladness and he exalts over them with loud singing. Zephaniah knows this is an amazing thing, which is why he says they will be quieted by his amazing love. It's a humbling thing to consider God's work in saving us when we realize how undeserving we are. That's a humbling thing when you come face to face with who you truly are in light of who God is and think about the fact that he loved us and he demonstrated that love for us and that while we are sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. That's a humbling thing. It should quiet us at first and then should lead us to rejoice and sing to him. How is God able to save them? How is he able to save us? Because he provides for us what he requires of us. He draws near to us. He becomes one of us in order to save us. Zephaniah's words in 3.17 should direct our thoughts to Jesus. This is a great verse of scripture to read this time of year with Christmas approaching. How are we a rebellious, godless, idolatrous, wayward, faithless, prideful people able to be forgiven and restored to God through the person and work of the King of Israel, the King of Kings, the Lord King Jesus. God sent his son to do this work. The Lord, the King of Israel, he sent him to dwell in our midst. Christ has come. He has tabernacled among us. He has become one of us to live the perfect life for us and to lay that life down in order to save us. I love the wording here in verse 17. It carries with it the idea of a battle that's been won. We've talked about this before at Christmas time. We should think of war. I know that doesn't, that kind of messes up your your roaring fire and wreath with the Christmas tree. But really, we should think war. There's a war going on. 
And Christ has come to be victorious. He fought that battle at Calvary for us. He became sin, who knew no sin, and endured God's wrath for us. He was crushed by God for us so that he could rescue us from the wrath of God to come. God requires perfection. He promises judgment to those who have fallen short of his glory, fallen short of his perfect standard. Praise be to God that he has provided for us what he requires of us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish this work for us. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation today? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you drawn near to God's Son? Are you looking to Him for your salvation? Have you made Christ Lord of your life? If not, I pray today would be the day you would repent of your sin and believe on Christ, making Him Lord so that your life would belong to His So that you would be restored. So that that great day of judgment that's coming would be a day of anticipation and joy for you as you await eternity in his presence with his people forever. Let's pray together.